Welcome back to Arab American Psycho. My name is Noor. I am here sitting in the living room of my parents' home with a longtime fan favorite and uh, returning guest, my sister Reem Khaldi. Hello, I'm Reem. <laughs> okay, super weird and not believable. And I'm also here with my mother, who is possibly participating, but also possibly napping. Would you like to speak your full name, madame? Friel Yunus Rashid. Okay. So she's going by her maiden name. Very mysterious. I didn't even give my family name because I've actually been considering just going by Reem Munzer these days instead of Reem Munzer Al Khaldi. I'm thinking about ditching the Al Khaldi, to be honest. <laughs> Mom did not like that. I mean, not like officially, just like. Just like my like, what is it? Like your stage my name? My stage name, exactly. For those of you who don't know, Reem, I'm <laughs> going to literally backhand you. For those of you who don't know, our middle name is both the same name, and that name is Munzid, which is my father's name. Munzid is actually present with us in the room right now. Hi, Baba. He audibly responds. He, he just waved. waved. He waved. Baba, okay. un, hi. Let the record reflect hi. that Dr. <laughs> Munzid Khadi waved and said hi. Reem is actually now, uh, what is it, court reporter? <laughs> Yeah. No, actually, the trial attorney is the one who says that. Oh, that's true. Responsible. So she's just being herself. She's not even cosplaying. But the topic at hand today uh, is, to no one's surprise, we're going to talk about Gaza. Um, and I thought it would be interesting to I have... personally love Gaza. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Imagine if you were like, you know what? Hot take? Not a fan. <laughs> I think that uh, that's not a hot take. So, I feel like a lot of people clearly don't like Gaza, want it destroyed. I mean, yeah, but not us. Obviously. I mean, I'm just saying. Um, but yeah, so I thought it'd be interesting because my sister Reem has gone to Gaza. How many times have you been there in the last two years? Three. Three, three times. times and like spent like five months. Her last trip was like about five months, right? No, the last trip was like two and a half months. Really? But like we were at other places for like a little bit. Yeah, she was tra- she was traveling, but my mom obviously was born there you'll know that from uh the one and only episode i did with her in 2021 what we were just talking about that i thought was interesting was the layout or the framework because you were explaining the way that the Gaza envelope existed pre-nekba yeah like it was a bunch of little cities that were all part of what was considered like the district of Gaza. So. They were obviously part of this, including Gaza City, which is the main city. Like, is the Gaza City is like the ancient. Well, that's the that's well, that's the Gaza Strip, but the Gaza District is bigger than just the Strip. But maybe they used to call the whole area the Strip back in the day, like as short. Did they? I don't know. Did they call it? I don't know if they called it. Like before 48, if they called it envelope or strip, I'm not really sure what language they use. Mom, did they call it an envelope or a strip? Before 48. Mom, I'm not sure. But I mean, was a Palestinian out of village. I think she Googled 000. it. <laughs> 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 the, also, the listeners could Google it too. I'm located at 29 kilometer. Yeah, North it was a very small town. Well, now they're talking about Karatiya, which is in a, a flat town, area city. with an elevation 
of one where my dad lived. It wasn't born there. He was born. He's in not, but that's where his family is from. Like yeah. El Khaldi family is known, like Karatiya. Like there is a specific El Khaldi family that's from Karatiya, and then there's another El Khaldi family that's from a bridge. Which is another district in Gaza. Oh, um, and some people are from there, and then some people are from Karatia. But they're like, uh-huh. you're talking about like 20 kilometers away from each other. Fallujah, من... Like these places are very close. Karatia is 20 kilometers northeast of the Gaza Strip. Okay, guys, that's exactly where it's located. And now it's like, um. The settlers burned down Sido's school. They burned down the wheat mill. They burned down all the farms and the houses and everything. We're and, talking about Karatiya. Karatiya. Yes. In 48, they just, just, they leveled everything. It's not like one of the, it's not like Al-Quds cities where they stole the homes and then moved in. Yeah, yeah. There's no they settlers just, there. Yeah, they just burned it all down. Just for fun. And they, it's like just, just for Zionism. It's just like industrial land. Just I don't know. for like colonialism. Like literally, it's just like get out. We just don't want you here. Yeah, like we're not even gonna live here. We just like don't want you to also be able to live here. Um, and so now the Al Khaldi family all went to Gaza, which like Gaza city, um, in forty eight, and I, so they I, all. I, they are, yeah, they're like the founding family of Karati. They're like they're... everyone knows them. I love that mom is just fully speaking in Arabic. You really I mean, decolonized your mind. I mean, like Fayyad, I'm pretty sure like 50 million people. Kassab. Okay, but wait, Kassab. mom. Oh, really? Kassab. There's a um uh I know someone from that family. That's what I heard in back in the olden days because they were the they were the ancestors of Khalid ibn Walid alayhi Dad's facial expressions, if only they Korea. could be picked up. So a lot of families live there. And then they were all expelled violently into Gaza. Okay, so let me ask you, when you went to Gaza, what was like the kind of like the vibe there? The vibe there is like survival. Okay. Um. Like the vibe of the people are just very like it's like very surreal actually because like they're just trying to like live their life. What kind of jobs do people have? A main like a good like the best job you could have in Gaza, like the highest paying job in Gaza is being a teacher at a UN school. Yeah. And you get paid a thousand dollars a month. And that is the highest pay you get paid more than a doctor. So, yeah. wait, mom, when you lived there, obviously in like late 40s, early 50s, was that also like one of the more like, I guess, prestigious, like comfortable jobs that you could have as teaching at a UN school? In 15, I was a child. You're just fully speaking in Arabic for this um, podcast. Yeah. So, and all the time, like to be in the United Nations, a teacher is the best job. In prestigious Gaza. and wealthy. 
Both. Yeah, and people are if you unless make, unless you are a business person. Uh, yeah, so that's a different. So if you're a businessman, that's a different job. It's not only a job. The most like stable, high paying occupation. I mean, it is, and it's but you're not getting like a salary. When they say Mudaris Wakala, he's wow. And Wakala is the UN. Well, it's actually not the UN. It's just that's the why when Anwara. I was not oh specifically when Anwara when I didn't choose the to work services. in the United Nations. All Gaza was like, what? She refused to work as a teacher at UN? That's very weird. Why did you refuse to work at the UN? Because I have two choices, either to be a teacher or to go to college with the scholarship that I have. When you were 16? When I finished, yeah. Uh, my, my, my aunt, they worked when they were 14. What is the problem? I Child had, labor. I had high school diploma. Yeah, people so used I to was work highly back like, like 14, 15, you were like fully educated. But they give you a lot of training, by the way. It's not like teaching in Gaza is very yeah, highly good. So they said, okay, either she work or she go to college. So my father preferred that to send me to college. And it's very strange that until this day, that's still like... That's still what anyone would decide. They would send their kid to college before they sent them to a job if they could. Oh, no, no. I just meant that the UN is like a high achievement. Yeah. And well, I, you know, I always thought, to be honest, that they make the process to become a teacher in Gaza like overly complicated and difficult to make it seem like a really highly sought after position. So to like go with the whole like manipulation, like colonial mindset, like working for, a uh, Western organization mm -hmm. is superior to working mm -hmm. for a Palestinian organization. And they make the pro like, I swear to God. So there's this test that they mm -hmm. give and like everyone applies to it and like one person passes. And then they have this like interview process that's like, everyone says it's like terrible. Like you go through all these like questioning and like interrogation and people go through that process because they want that good job. You know what I mean? But I always thought that they were just making the process like really difficult and and trying to maintain the basically like monopolize the economy in Gaza in order to always keep Western organizations superior to working for any Palestinian organization. I mean, to be honest, like I don't ever work with the UN and I don't like they've offered me to like run camps at their schools and I'm just like, no, thank you. We're going to run our camps in our community centers. Like we'll, we'll run them in the masjid. We'll run them in the parks. We'll run them at our center. Um, I just, I always knew that they were like a hoax. Healing Our Homeland is a Palestinian woman-led grassroots organization. So even though I'm the founder, we run as a grassroots organization, which means that we respond to the needs of the community versus what any particular person decides is the best strategy for supporting Palestinian women and children. But obviously, you know, we use strategies and we use like research-backed things as well. But we're also like super careful about what research back things we do. Like, for example, with like therapy and things like that, you know, obviously Western psychology cannot just blindly be applied to the situation in Palestine since it's not made with the Palestinian person experience in mind when creating, you know, 
and I don't want to talk about like psychology really, but like we just try to be, you know, aware of what we're, what techniques we're using and that like it is actually like what the Palestinian people want and not just what white people think is the best thing to do. That's a huge relief because I will say it does seem um, like uh, Western lens and just Western ideology is the root of truly all evil and violence in this world. Yeah. I mean, like literally every single system in in the Western world is rooted in white supremacy. So even when we look at something like psychology or the law, those things are rooted in white supremacy. So we can't just take it at face value. We have to recognize that there are biases and that this these ideas, these ideologies were actually created to benefit white people at our detriment. So why would we use the ideology that was literally the foundational idea behind it was for us to just whatever happens to us, who cares? Well, that kind of also ties back into mom's story about rejecting a job at the UN, because eventually when you did graduate from college, you did move back to Gaza and you were a teacher at a Palestinian school. Yeah. Can you talk about your experience teaching there? The best. I was working in Shahid Mustafa Hafiz. Can you raise your voice, ma'am? Okay, so Mustafa Hafiz School. Why were you excited about that specific job working at that school? I applied for a job. I didn't know anything about UN. It's not like I, I mean I avoided UN. I didn't know. I don't know even the difference at that time. So I applied and I was accepted right away. And I went to high school. Uh, Mustafa Hafiz was teaching high school. And I will say that I will say generally people didn't recognize um, like the, how the UN was um Nobody I would, told me like anything. how they were creating this like division within society in Gaza, like at the time, like back in like the 50s, 60s, 70s, even until literally like 10 years ago, it seemed to any person who didn't have like an in-depth knowledge and even someone like me, like before I went to law school, it seemed like they were trying to help refugees mm -hmm. and it seemed like they were doing great stuff and providing all these services and all of this stuff. So no one had any real reason to like doubt anything. To doubt anything yeah. They were doing like actually, yeah, with the schooling, the school that were the best schools. But were they the best schools because of like them or because of the teachers who no, were Palestinian? They trained them. Who was training them? The United Nations. But there are Palestinian people who work for the United Nations. Yeah, but this, again, Palestinian has persistence. There are much, I mean, if I compare the teachers at that time that were teaching me and the teacher now, there is no comparison. They are the best. They call it traditional teaching, but it was actually the best teach. I have here uh, that in 1972, you said, and I quote, it was your favorite teaching position because it was in your country. Yeah. You also said, and I quote, you worked under occupation in Gaza. So it was a different feeling and very challenging. Very challenging, yeah. Yeah. Could you speak on what what made it a positive experience you always, and what made it challenging? You help your own people, that's number one. You are out the, in your land, whether it's occupied or not occupied, but I didn't feel, 
I didn't feel occupation at all. I mean, I never thought, like, I am not in my country. So, and when they come and <clears throat> to supervise me in the classroom, I mean, in mind, and I was not like scared or anything. So, why would you be scared? Because they come with who's they fully armed the Israeli people. Yeah, bro. They used to like just storm in the classrooms and like not a storm. They come and supervise. So, like, uh, um, supervise. Mom, I understand they used to come and make yeah, sure you weren't yeah, teaching so, the but, kids any information but, but that mom, they didn't approve but they come of. With guns, I mean, they are armed. They live and just but but here's the thing, mom. Just because you weren't necessarily threatened or scared, obviously, this is an abnormal environment for you to be teaching at a school on in your country in the city that you were born and raised, and to have any form of militants yeah, or soldiers yeah, pull up in your classroom with guns and they're like carry on with your lesson i'll I mean, just be I, here I, with I, my I, gun and if you say the wrong thing i'm literally gonna take you away and kidnap I you i teach english so i mean <laughs> like nothing's gonna be english you know the students first of all they don't get scared you know Okay, well, that's good, but it still yeah, doesn't make it, it is cool. not like a normal, yeah. Yeah, but the reality is, is that Palestinians don't really, like, ha like it, when an Israeli soldier is, like, in your face. No one cares. Like, no one cares. Or shave or no, no like, one literally, like, my God. Scared. I think irrefutably, <laughs> indisputably, no one thinks Palestinians are scared because in the last 30 days, I've seen videos of, like, five-year-olds being, like, let them come. Let them come. I don't care. Let them come. No, but Israeli I'll soldiers. tell you, honestly, like when I saw the soldiers, when I tried to go into Quds this summer, like I thought I would like feel some sort of like way, mm -hmm. but like I didn't. I just felt like you're so stupid. Like even if they have like their, their guns and there's like a million of them and there's only one of me, I'm just like, you're, you're like, like, it's embarrassing. It's like, yeah, like I like wasn't scared at all. Even my kids, they were like, those are Israeli soldiers. Like they were shocked. They were just like, they're not even intimidating or like scary. And they're like eight years old and five years old. They couldn't believe it. They thought that they would have like a scary experience, but they were just like, those guys are losers. Um, as the Adif calls them nerds but honestly i, I don't even think husband. they deserve the term nerd no nerds would uh, you know infer that they're they're smart, smart and they're, they're just not they're dummies this is now whose phone is it on this silent is, this is now let's shit on zionist mom no mom i did want to just touch on a little bit more about the united nations because i feel like a lot of the stories you've told me about your childhood involved the united nations would you say that the united nations was heavily involved in your have, life living in gaza in gaza they used to give us the the, the food whatever like the basic food mm -hmm. like every month for everybody so it was like a monthly thing with the united yeah, nations like flour rice uh, uh, and until this very day, 75 years later, that's how it works. Like some uh, oil. Then I got a scholarship from UN, my, I mean, why? To go to college. I was like offered either to go to Egypt or Lebanon or Britain. So that's what I'm saying. Like the UN provides good services. Right. But like 
what she's not telling you is like how they created like a division in society that was very noticeable to the people between the refugees and the Muwaklinin, who are like the original people, the inhabitants of Gaza, Gaza, like the people who were there before 1948. They just live there. So consider us invaders. And so there was this very... Because now the UN <laughs> is building refugee camps on their agricultural land. So instead of having because agri- Gaza used to be a lot of agricultural right. land, now it's all just a bunch of brick cement yeah, houses. Yeah, because of the refugees. Because there's no space and there's too many people who is, it's obviously it was very overly clear populated. At our age, like Martin Mohajib. Now it's not very clear. So, but that was like the because beginning it's a new of- generation now. Well, yeah. So at this point, the people were born in Gaza. Their kids were born in Gaza. Yeah. But at that point, this was like right after oh, the Nakba. And all of these like divisions that are being created within Palestinian society are a tool of colonization to divide the society within itself. Because if people are united and they see all of themselves as the same, right? Then it's harder to defeat those people. But if everyone kind of sees themselves as this individual identity that's right. separate from I'm Palestinian, mm-hmm. then it's easier to control them. It's like the same thing what happened with the Native Americans that used to live here in, in Turtle Island here, like in this land, is when the British and the Europeans colonizers came, they didn't see themselves as one nation. They saw themselves as separate nations. And that's how they were able to control through that division because it's easier to burn down a village of, you know, 2,000 people in Karatiya. They've been working on this division of colonization like before 48. Like this is like the colonial ideology from, you know, hundreds of years when they first started thinking of, okay, how are we as white people, the superior race, going to get more resources and land that we need? We need more resources. We need more land. We need more laborers. And how are we going to achieve this? Oh, we're going to achieve it through colonization. And so the plan, you know, just developed, developed, developed. And obviously, Palestine is one of the last places that was colonized in 48, but like not the only place, but like one of the last places. But I mean, like all of the Americas were colonized, you know, Australia and all of those areas. And so they had already figured out what worked and what didn't work. And then they'd already figured out like different techniques and how to implement them through the already established system. So that's why they can make it like seem super legitimate mm-hmm. through the United Nations, which was created essentially as a tool for the colonizer to get more, to make it more legitimate. So it didn't look like colonization anymore. Right, right. It's like, we're helping you. Exactly. Like you can't even be mad at me and be so nice to you. Exactly. Like I'm giving you an education in, in a bag of flowers. So like, why would you think I'm trying to help? I will say if someone them. offered me uh, education and a bag of flour in exchange for truly anything, I'd be like, piss off, mate. Yeah, but I, but like, I mean, those are two things I'm not interested in. Like they obviously. But yeah, they put them into a situation, put them where, in a situation where that like, was their that's only a commodity. Like you either get this education and this flour or you die. So what would you say their presence today in Gaza is like slash like 
what we were talking about, how there was like, you know, the people who were originally from Gaza versus refugees. Like, is does that division, can you still feel it? In- no, no, you, you don't like now, like you don't really, you don't really feel any sense of division. But like every, like people who came as refugees in 48 are now considered Gazans. Like, and they consider themselves cousins. Like, if you ask them, like, oh, what's your original city? They'll tell you, like, I'm from Al-Quds or wherever they're from. But they're from Gaza, you know? And they speak Ghazawi and they eat Ghazawi food. Um, And so they've definitely, like, now that it, they've, it's been a couple generations, um, you don't see that division so much. But, you know, they still, the UN still plays a role in um, the dehumanization of the Palestinians and, and sh- making sure that they are entirely reliant on the United Nations. So the what has happened in the past 75 years is they've made themselves so indispensable that literally people in Gaza couldn't have basic survival within them. But like refugees is supposed to be like a temporary thing. Right. So like UN is supposed to be like, this is a temporary thing. I'm helping you. We solved and, it. and then we solved it. Yeah. It's not supposed to be like an ongoing thing where they provide refugee services like, you know, in perpetuity. But I think that like people in Gaza, obviously like it's a very difficult topic because they're so reliant on it. So they can't just be like, get out of here. Because like who would be paying the salaries of and like their their unemployment is so low already. So if like, you know, a large percentage of the people who are employed are employed through the U.N., then all those people would then be unemployed. Yeah. You know, and like even like the people who are employees of the government in Gaza, those people do not get full salaries. And sometimes they go they don't even get their salaries or it's super late. And like what kind of roles do they have? They would be like, um, like people who like clean the streets, like okay. you know, pick up the trash. Mm-hmm. Um, teachers at the government schools, mm-hmm. police officers, um, like lifeguards, like you know, like city jobs. And there's still UN schools; they're still running. Uh, all the refugee kids go to them. So if you're the child of a refugee from 48, you go to the UN school. If you are a a, a Mualtan from Gaza, if you are from Gaza, you go to a government school. That's how they divide the kids in school. No, no, no. Can, uh, English. And I think both we go can go to the end. You can. You can like there's like some there's like some exceptions. Like it's not a hard and fast rule like that. Like you if it's closer to you, you can like apply for like the I mean at my time there not a lot of government. Like only UN. Later, they have some kind of private schools, you can say. Yeah, yeah, there's private schools and too. And some government uh, school, but before when I at my time, everybody goes to the same school. Oh, well, now they they have like government schools. They also have private schools as like well. like any other country. They just, they build more schools, I guess. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they have way more schools now than they And they, they have business, and like they have what the... They have like international English schools and Yeah. They even have a school that's um all the teachers are nuns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't know. I guess that's what it's called. Yeah, it's called um like a Catholic school? 
Yeah, it's like I don't a, know if it's a Catholic, like old nuns, like an ortho, like a Christian Orthodox, not Catholic, yeah, yeah. like Greek Orthodox or oh, something like that. And they are proud of it. Like if you put your kids in this school, it's like a, it's like a very expensive, it's like a prestigious. Flex. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely a flex. It's like expensive school that only like wealthy people can afford to send their kids to that school. Yeah, well, that did. Damn. I mean, I know, I know people whose kids are in that school, but I mean, whatever. It's their choice. I mean, I don't have a problem with people <laughs> I don't know going I'm... to that school. Do you have a problem with that, Mom? With what? Because she's like referring to like the class division, right? Like, so I think that she just like doesn't like that like class. She doesn't like classes. Like, I think that's what she's because it there it does create you know even like there's like certain like restaurants that are obviously like more expensive that you know the average person in Gaza couldn't eat at and you know that if someone goes to eat there like they must like not care they must have like excess money you know how the mother still wear this everywhere no one, Dhabi, it's fe, a franchise I didn't know that. Actually, Someone needs mom. to take Google away from home. <laughs> She's literally just Googling everything. Okay, we back to about. my question. She does not respect me. I'm the host and producer of the show, lady. Oh my god. What was your question again? Fuck you. <laughs> oh my god. The question was, what were some like immediate? Oh, oh, immediate, immediate stuff. I would say my first reaction was how much the oxygen filled my lungs in a way that i never felt before like it genuinely felt like i'd never taken a deep breath like that in my entire life and actually if you mom 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 she's looking at me shocked because she had the same experience and i didn't know she had the experience and then when i told her about it she was like this is how i express it i said I felt the first time in my life I breathe or I have oxygen. When you were in Gaza? Oh, when I entered Gaza. When? Like when you English. Like, when you like, hold on, what person at a time? This is a podcast. This isn't Al Jazeera. Mom, finish your story. When I go from the border, like go to Rafah, right away I feel like oxygen. She means like when she crosses from Egypt into Palestine. Like when you were like in college? Mm. And what about no, recently? No, no, like no, forever, no. like for no, every go, single time. Whenever I cross the road, the border, I go to go gas, I feel like the, the oxygen is different. Also. Like you feel like your lungs are like filling my with lungs air. Is have oxygen. Yes. And, and you feel like you're like unable to breathe when you're not there. I mean, I mean, I didn't feel that I'm not breathing until you. You don't know what breathing is like until you go there. Like this breathing, like once you experience that breathing, I'm and really then... stressed out. I've never breathed before. <laughs> once really you experience stressed. like breathing there, and then you breathe here, you're just like, I'm being gypped. Oh, Avery, you <laughs> told me about your breath. Water there is like extremely satisfying. Like food, I would get full in like a millisecond. Of eating the food there. I like never would feel hungry, even if I would sometimes Adif would literally be like, When was the last time you ate? And I'm like, I don't know. He's like, You need to eat something to like live. And I'm like, I just don't feel hungry. So you're saying that the land was not only filling your lungs with air, but nourishing you in every way. Yes, literally. And like, The first time I went there for like those three weeks that I went before I took my family to like check it out, Mm -hmm. 
I thought it was like a fluke. You know what I mean? Like I thought, oh, it's like the first time I'm here. So like maybe mm-hmm. I'm having some sort of emotional experience. Right. You thought it would like wear off. Then I went the second time it happened again. And then I went the third time and it happened again. And I was like, okay, this is not a this is like actually like blessed baraka land. Like there the, there's so much baraka in the land that you literally feel like this immense amount of like tranquility, peace, and comfort that is indescribable. And I've traveled to a million different places and I've never felt that way. It's truly like you feel like you're having some sort of like mystical experience, but like everyone is sharing in the same experience. Because if you talk to people in Gaza, they're just like, yeah, like we know, like there's angels everywhere. Like, you know what I mean? Like, because that's their life now. Like they've breathed that oxygen their whole life. So like their lungs are literally full of that oxygen. I have to go breathe in Gaza. I mean, I think it. I, I have. I mean, I have a feeling it's all of Palestine. I just don't have the privilege of going to the other parts of Palestine. I can only go to Gaza, so that's all I've, I've personally experienced. But maybe other people who've been to like other areas could share their experience of breathing in Palestine. I mean, honestly, I'm I'm definitely interested and I'm really sad that I don't really have any memory of breathing specifically when I was there, but I was so small. So I don't know that I was very conscious of any of my bodily functions. I mean, probably not. I don't remember it when I was a kid. I just like, I don't know. And the other thing about Gaza that's like, you also don't recognize until you go there is how distinct the different areas of Gaza are. Like, Gaza City is like a, in everyone's mind, is a completely different place than like Rafah, Khan Yunus. How so? Like, they're just different cities. Like, I mean, obviously, but like, what are, like, they have their own like vibes. Mm-hmm. Like, they each area has like its own vibe. Like, the people there have their own vibe. They have like their own like way of like doing stuff. Like, um, Like, the taxi drivers, I feel like, are different. Like, if you pick up a taxi in, like, one area, like, they're different than, like, a taxi driver in, like, a different area for some – I don't know why. I can't can't really tell you what's different. Kind of had different accents, too. Mom, I wanted to ask you, first of all, when was the last time you went to Gaza? How many years ago was it? Uh, Maybe 11, when when I went only me and my dad. 11 years ago? Not – 2011. Oh, 2011. Wow, that's a really yeah, long time so like ago. Yeah, 12 years ago. That's a 11, really long years time. Ago. Yeah, I guess maybe that's the last. Do you feel like you'll ever go back? I'll go over? Yeah. I don't think so. Do you want to go back? I want to, but it's very difficult. Like, uh, I mean, energy, health. Yeah, because the trip to Gaza, even in normal circumstance, without everything that's going on is literally like a two day you have to wake up in the middle of the night and like literally be tortured and like humiliated to get into Gaza. can you like not literally elaborate but some people do actually get tortured Well, can you elaborate on your experience um i mean like the first time i went it was like two nights i mean two two, nights where like basically like the first i had to go from cairo to drive to the like Ma'adiyya, which is like the 
Basic, the, the beginning of the militarization of the Sina Desert. Okay. So like where the militarization of the Sina Desert like begins. So like okay. you couldn't pass into Egypt Understood. without going through there. You have to like go and like basically wait in your car from like 11 o'clock at night, the night before, sleep in your car until they open the, the Madia at like 7, 8 a.m. So you literally sleep overnight in your car. You sleep overnight. There's apparently like places that you can rent when in I the area in, but no one told me the, i mean maybe they changed it okay yeah. so then you you so that's already like a full night and then you get to so but but just for like uh transparency you can pay someone to wait for you but if they catch you you go to the back of the line or they don't let you through okay so it's kind of risky but you can pay a car to like be posted, posted up for, for yeah, you. Yeah. So you can sleep and then like come in the morning instead of sleeping in the car. Because also you don't have like air condition in your car. So if it's like hot summer, you're literally sleeping in like a hundred degrees with flies everywhere. Okay. So then you you get to that you're in the line and then and then you go through you get first you get like you give them your passport and your like documentation. They act like you know like you're crazy like they act they just like act like what are you doing here like you're so annoying for being here um, they're inconvenienced yeah I, they're so inconvenienced like you're so annoying like why are you even here and they search your bags they search your car um how long does this like search process it just depends last? on like well you've gone a few times so like like it depends like it, every time i've gone it's depended like sometimes like they'll search every single one of your bags thoroughly every single like they're removing everything they're removing everything from your bag and searching every single thing sometimes they're just like rummaging through really quick mm -hmm. or some they always almost always check every bag though like at least a cursory right, right, right. check of every bag and then and sometimes they dump all of your shit out of your bag and then like start screaming at you to like hurriedly put all of your stuff back in the bag because there's like a line of a million people that seems like a trick um and they do that like all the time okay so then especially to women's purses they love dumping women's purses it's like their favorite thing feels misogynistic Anyways. um and they'll like start eating your snacks and like taking your snacks. They'll confiscate random stuff that they feel like having. Because you have to also imagine that these Egyptian soldiers are like 18 year olds who literally were forced to join the military. So they're also like babies. So like ba imagine an 18 year old. There's two reactions. Either they become like crazy with power mm -hmm. where they're like, I'm the most powerful person in the world. Like I have a gun and I hate you. Or they're just like children and they're just like. I want to play with this, like <laughs> Nintendo. Ooh. You know what I mean? Like, so, like, I remember like, when they saw my soccer balls, like, I brought the World Cup soccer balls for the kids in Gaza. All of the soldiers, like, you, you have to imagine they're, like, 18, 19, 20-year-old soldiers in Egypt. They obviously love soccer. So they're, like, seeing these balls, and they're, like, you got all of, you're going to take all of these balls to Gaza? Like, you bought all of these galls. Are they original? Like, you know? And I was like, no, they're totally fake. Like, I, I mean, it's okay to lie in war. I mean, Reem, I wasn't, I wasn't like, it wasn't But like I'm just saying, generally, I never lie, except for to, like, soldiers. Okay. Well, that's some information for us all to enjoy. Um, <laughs> so once you go through this, what seems to be, like, a Egyptian teen, like, 
gathering. So then one time they sent this guy who was like pretending to be like a bag carrier guy. Uh-huh. And I So he was an undercover spy. I already had a bag carrier guy. And then all of a sudden this like new bag carrier guy came. 100% an Israeli soldier. Like he literally was like talking like with like a like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, like, come on, guys. We've all seen a video. Like, we know Israeli how they speak Arabic. Video. Yeah, okay, yeah. so he's speaking to me in Arabic, like, oh, like, where are you? He's yeah. like, hello. Vetchin was literally like, what kind of law do you practice? And I was like, okay, how does this bag carrier guy <laughs> know that I'm a lawyer? That's really random information. You weren't wearing your lawyer shirt? <laughs> I wasn't. <laughs> so, obviously, I knew, and, like, literally the guy in the line behind me was like, like he was looking. She just gestured with her eyes in like, a way that would indicate that, bro, that guy's a spy. Um, and I was just like, yeah, I obviously like it. The second he said like, "Salamu alaikum," I was just like, "You're a fucking spy." But obviously, I didn't say that. <laughs> but I wanted to. He told me his name was Muhammad. I was like, "Get creative, bro." <laughs> and he was like, <laughs> and he was literally like tiny, like. What do you mean? He was like as tall as me. Because she's five foot one. Okay. He's like literally as tall as me, but like weighs like a hundred pounds. Maybe. Um, obviously they couldn't put him like in any other real role. So they were just like, go on this Egyptian border and try to act like you're a Palestinian bag also, carrier. I'm guy. sorry. If I'm looking what? for someone to carry my bag, it's not a guy who's five one and weighs a hundred pounds. That's like, a child. I was just like, are you like the reject Zionist soldier? For sure. Like they definitely he like failed like the field thing and they set him there. Even though honestly they suck at combat, they're really just pressing buttons. They probably only got him because he speaks Arabic. I'm sure that was like the key. You speak Arabic, you can go. But they mean they train specific people to like be spies, but they're just really bad at it. Honestly, they're really bad at everything they do. And I feel like their their biggest propaganda is pretending that everything they do is awesome, even though or they're like the best or like the most like uh, like wow, like our military is like so you guys your military sucks. Well, and that's like the that, I mean that goes back to the same idea of like American exceptionalism. Like once the facade or like the veil that America is so great falls. Everything else about America falls. Like once you get out of that mindset that like this is the American dream and you're like, that's a lie. Like you all of a sudden, like the whole entire, their whole entire thing falls apart because it's based, it's reliant on people to believe that white, whiteness and Westernism and all of these things are supreme. So once you don't have that ideology and you release yourself from it, then the whole you can see everything I and know. it's the same thing and with it's so annoying bro because then once you see everything you it's everything sucks and you can't unsee it and it's like this like cloud of darkness that's constantly there and people are like nor come to the thanksgiving day parade and i'm like you don't want me going to that and i will not have a good time and in fact i will verbally tell you how much of a not good time i'm having and it's gonna bum you out and it's not like i want to go around bumming every went out unless they asked me to bum them out but like i don't want to go there because it's going to piss me off like what are you celebrating what are you celebrating the ethnic yeah. cleansing of the indigenous people and a tr- eating turkey and black friday shopping i'm not interested in that i'm gonna pass yeah i um 
yeah, like welcome to my life because like once he, I it's not burned his Zayeda. Mom, I didn't see any pictures of it. I just heard. Guys, we are having an audio recording. I also have to together. edit out like ninety percent of this because I've been having just immense coughing attacks because I've you're never been to Gaza. You're not allowed to cough on your podcast. It's very annoying for listeners to hear loud coughing. Oh, I don't anyway, know. Um, okay, mom, let me ask you a question. Do you feel as though you believe in like Western exceptionalism? Uh, I mean, it's what's good for you. Better how? The standard of living, like uh, luxury, everything is available. Electricity, water, jobs. Still, like there is space of freedom of speech. There is no freedom of speech. Um, she said, like kind of. It is like there is still a little bit. It's a facade. But the... do you believe that the reason why they have these, let's call them like luxuries or privileges, and places like Palestine don't, is also because of them? I mean, I don't want to go to history and politics. That's like something. Oh yeah. well, we're talking like, about. Uh, yeah, Mom doesn't want to talk about white supremacy. Okay. Okay, fine. I was trying I mean, to bait. Yeah, her. I know all this uh, history. That <laughs> I was baiting you. They, they like they have all the wealth of all the world, and they like got it. You know, it's they not, stole it. Yeah, I mean, they invaded Iraq and Libya, and I don't know where and here. Where have I, they not I invaded? Mean, would be a better question. For real, where have they not invaded? And they have a uh, skeleton in all their closets. So. Damn. It's not, it's I'm sorry, not, mom. Not but that's the thing. It's not a secret, and people are so blind to it to a point where it's shocking. It's shocking. Have you always known this? Like, have you always known that white supremacy rules everything and they control everything and everything is a facade. Like, when did you realize that? I'm not a great in history, but I mean... Roughly speaking, she means like her memory. Lately, when I came, like 1983, I was impressed by everything in America. So up until that point... Especially education. Actually, I started feeling it on... Uh, Iraq war that 2001 okay that was it for me too the the 9-11 and Iraq war that opened my eyes to many things because remember I used to like love America when I was like you a did. kid and then like after the war in Iraq happened I was like wait a minute this is crazy and like I used to watch it on Al Jazeera, so I didn't used to get like the fake propaganda in America. Like we lived in Emirat at the time, so I like would get the real news about what was happening in Iraq, and I was like, "This is insane." But even then, I still had like a a a belief that the system could be ch changed. Mm -hmm. If enough good people worked within the system, mm -hmm. and I still believe that reform could happen, like that. This are you saying you believe or believed past tense? I believed past tense, right? Like for a long time, I still believe that. Obviously, that's why I went to law school and like 
work yes, the jobs yes. that I work because yeah. I believed that like if there was representation, if if there was good people who cared about it and and cared about justice, that if we worked hard enough, that we would be able to change the system and make everything better. And then I worked in the system and I was like, oh my god, that's actually a complete lie. Um, and for context, she worked in the system uh, as a prosecutor. And a Title IX investigator and a Title at, UC, investigator. at a university. Which you can listen to previous episodes for more information on that because we, and, we've already covered it. And like, and that's, and so like, it wasn't until like, I don't know, what year was it? Maybe like two, 2016? Mm-hmm. 2016. 2016. Like, when did, when did, um, like, I think it was like 2016, like, like shootings like cop shootings started becoming i mean i'm sure they were always frequent but like we started seeing it more like on the news people were talking about it more like trayvon martin like trayvon martin um like stuff like that like and i started like kind of being like wait a minute like what's going on that's when i started like reading kind of like untraditional books that like I didn't read before, like before I was very like academic in my reading. Mm-hmm. And then I started reading, you know, um, mom, are you actually <laughs> so serious right now? She's literally watching what TikTok? She's like watching reels or something, bro. Um, mom, this is very disrespectful to my production. <laughs> mom, I will literally throw your phone from the river to the sea. <laughs> I don't even remember what my specific thoughts were about the Iraq war. I just remember being like, damn, this is a huge bummer and I'm a kid. Questions I wasn't necessarily asking, but I remember thinking them like, damn, like, why are they doing this? They're still doing this. This is still happening. This is Mm. still going on. Like, what are they doing? And like, they keep saying that they're like the good guys, but like, I just really don't feel like they are. I was like 10, 11. Anyway, but I will say it was once I started noticing that black people were being shot constantly in America. That's when I was like, hold on one second. Yeah. I would Why does this keep happening? That- and I thought police were supposed to be protecting us. And um, why do they keep shooting people all the time? And then I was like, oh, my God, wait, it's because they're literally racist. Oh, my God. America is literally built on racism. And then, you know, ever since then, things really just have never been the same, Um, which, you know, I'm grateful that I'm not blind or a dummy because so many people really, truly are so stupid. Um, And you know what? Good for them. Ignorance truly is bliss. I'm sure you sleep super happy at night. I've now developed insomnia. I mean, imagine how I felt like being a prosecutor and like I I am I am law enforcement and I'm like watching shoot you right now. Like I was like watching this happen and I'm like, holy shit, like I'm the problem. Like I'm part of this problem. I uphold I uphold and legitimize and normalize this system of oppression. And I just wasn't okay with that. And obviously it took me a couple of years to like finally like come to terms with it. It wasn't super easy. I no, didn't just like it doesn't happen. I, I wasn't like just overnight. like, oh, I'm gonna go quit my job now that I like worked my entire life to try to achieve and I'd finally become a trial attorney and SVU is like my dream job to be like, okay, I'm now going to leave my dream job. But like, I just couldn't unsee it. And like, every single time I'd go into court, I'd look at the 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 jury box that was full of inmates. And it's like, everyone was black. And then I would like, listen to the way the judges would talk to black people versus white people. And I'm like, oh my God, like, 
this is happening right in front of my face and I can't stop it. And no matter how much I work, I can't change it. And no matter how many hours I put in, no matter how much I try to be fair and just, it's it's not that the system is just really corrupt because it's rooted in corruption and like and it's also rooted in like white supremacy i mean it's it's literally rooted in white supremacy and that's not a secret Uh, literally so anyone who literally denies it it's not that it's not a secret what i'm saying is i'm like you're talking like you're at a level that other people are not at so you need to i'm not i don't mean that to be (laughs) insulting to the audience what i mean is like you're like just jumping through these things and i'm like you know no no stop and realize like i'm like a lot of people don't see it as clearly. I I mean, obviously, I recognize that. And like you're saying like, oh, how you can't sleep at night. Like I've been in this state pretty much forever about one matter or the other. I mean, maybe it wasn't U.S. imperialism from the get-go, but it was always, I was always awakened to it. It just, I wasn't awoken to the root cause yet. And that's when like radicalization starts happening. Well, we can't say the R word when we're <laughs> literally about to be done with the episode. Oh, I wanted to like explain how like because everyone I hear people talking about like oh like what radicalized you? What radicalized you? The thing that people I feel like don't understand is when you become root radicalized, what happens is you start to understand the root of the issue. Radicalization, the word radical just literally means like the root of. So when you are a radicalized person, it means that you are able to recognize what the root problem is and you want to address the root issue and not just superficially cover it up like they would like us to do. They obviously don't want us to know what the root issue is. They don't want us to respond to the root issue. And that's why they've turned radicalization into this like negative connotation, like you're bad for wanting to just address the root issue and not just pretend like it doesn't exist. I'm not gonna lie, that really that was bars. Like I that's gonna be the clip that I use. Um, mom, I will say, does she's holding her face and she's looking into nothingness, and it does seem like she might be dissociating. Mom, do you have any final words before we wrap up this episode? No, thank you. Okay. I, I just want to say that mom is like um, really not herself right now. Yeah. For the audience to know. Well, she's, she's been on the show before, so they know. Yeah. Like she's feeling like pretty like tired and also like everything that's been happening in Gaza has been happening for a really long time. So it's like. We're also recording. Yeah. It's it's November 26th. We've been, what is it called? A uh, humanitarian pause. Is that what yeah. they're calling it? It's day two or three. It's day three and like. And the the war in Gaza is had gone over fifty days. So yeah, she's she's really she's really um you know she's really not maybe feeling great. I quite frankly am not either. Uh, no, I, I mean I I don't think my, any Palestinian my, yeah, is doing well. My, so if you have Palestinian friends, like check on them. Yeah, check on. <laughs> <laughs> we were in new Smyrna beach which is like a beach town in florida and there was a white pickup truck and in white stickers decal on the back said check on your friends just really big and unnecessary and i don't know what happened to that person but reem said that she felt like they were saying to check on your white friends um and it did feel inherently racist everything about it i mean i will say i see a pickup truck and i think i want that but i also think you're a racist <laughs> 
those are the two thoughts that pa- pass through my mind. And the only reason I want to pick up truck is if I got into a collision, I would probably, you know, you would win. I would win. I would win the car accident. And that's all I'm trying to do is win a car accident. As a Palestinian, I'm just trying not to die. Word. Word. The generational trauma, it's in our bones. Mom, we have osteoporosis, but you know what else we have? Trauma. She just waved at me. Um, thank you so much to my sister, Reem. Thank you so much to my mother, Fidel. As always, guys, don't forget to floss your teeth, wear your sunscreen, don't be an asshole. I can't believe I even remembered my sign-off because I have not done this in 7,000 years. I'm going to have Healing Our Homeland linked in the episode description and all of Reem's social media. My mom doesn't believe in social media. In fact, she hates it with every fiber of her being, although she does love to scroll and watch reels that came out months earlier. Okay, bye.